Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Mackey. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackey. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Footage. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. And John, it's good to be back. Obviously, I've been away commentating the Champions Trophy Hockey in London, which was, I have to say, a really brilliant event, both of them. Uh, A little bit annoying the way the men's finished, where India lodged a protest after the match. And so the trophy wasn't presented. Everyone had left the stadium. And only then, when it was uh, not upheld, did the Australians receive the trophy in the dressing room, which, to me, if you're going to have rules, you can't... The the umpire or the referee is the man in charge. You either walk off if you don't agree with it, or you stay on and you accept it, and his decision or her decision is final. Basically, isn't that the way we're all taught to play sport? That the umpire's correct, and you just got to push on with it and get over it. Well, it is indeed. Well, on this show, we're really looking forward to catching up with Benita Merciades. Now, she obviously was a whistleblower for the World Cup bids and Australia and Qatar and Russia and all of that. But she's got some really interesting views on where the game of football is going, where FIFA is going, and, uh, you know, maybe mistakes that were made with the FFA or things that can change in the future. And it's going to be a really interesting chat. It's a long chat with her, so... Uh, John and I are not going to talk quite so much today. (laughs) We've got a little bit to say, though. We do indeed. And and first of all, I want to just touch on uh, the Western Force and the sacking of Michael Foley. To me, well, I I just find that unbelievable. Three games to go. Let the guy see out the end of the season. And I think they actually got rid of the wrong man. If you look at the Western Force and the way they've played... Under Michael Foley, yes, this has been a very disappointing season. No doubt about that. If you look at it, though, the forward pack has been good. The pack has always been solid. The backs have been the problem. Some of that is the recruitment. They've signed, in my opinion, below-par backs to be able to run the ball, pass the ball, etc. But also you have to look at the coaches. And I think the coaches for the back line haven't been up to the mark in what is required to be competitive at Super Rugby. And yet we now see them taking over. We've seen ill-discipline over in Bloemfontein. And it seems to me that getting rid of Foley, the wheels have really come off. There are now issues with players with their contracts for next year. When you look at the results this season, they've had a couple of bad losses. They've been in a lot of games. They've, they've been in a lot of games if they could have won, but you know that last five or ten minutes of the games cost them. Uh, they've had their, their, their bad losses have been no worse than the bad losses that the Brumbies have had. The Brumbies have been thrashed a couple of times. Well, the Rebels the, as well. The Waratahs have been flogged a couple of times, big time floggings. Well, Australian teams have only won, I think it's three out of 22 games against New Zealand opposition. So it's across the board, Australia yeah. is not performing well. Yeah, and but it seems the Western Force are the whipping boys for poor Australian performances in rugby. Yeah, look, I, I think that, again, it goes back to the calibre of some of the players. If you look at some of the players that have come to the Western Force, they were struggling to get games on the East Coast or they were um, inexperienced to be able to get games on the East Coast. And they've come here, and it's that inexperience that has let them down. In crucial points in the games, they've made the wrong decisions. Now, that is a learning process, and that's why you have to stick with a coach. I think Michael Foley was getting them on the right path. I do think his backroom staff needed a a, a revamp. I don't think he necessarily had the best coaches supporting him. That's my view. 
Well, I think uh, the Australians, Wayne Smith, hit it on the head. Well, there was no problems with their discipline when Michael Foley was there. But within a week of him going, there's all these discipline problems. And that, that does say something. I mean, the, the big problem, and you, you talked about this off air, is they don't have huge publicity in this state. No. You know, they are, are below the pecking order. If you look at rugby and you look at Perth Glory, they fall way down the pecking order behind a lot of other sports because both of those, of course, are deemed as a threat to the AFL. And that's why, and let's be honest, both of the newspapers in this town are very very strong AFL papers. And so they don't really want to push those two to the fore unless it is for a negative story. Is there anybody in the Perth media, sports media, that has a background in rugby? And when uh, I, I mean, played it or coached it or been involved in committees with rugby or clubs, is there anybody? Well, Nick Taylor at the West, yes, okay. he has. He's been involved with clubs locally, served on the committees with them, and he is a rugby man. So I think that is fair. At least we've got one. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, very often when I read some of the rugby stories, I must admit I don't read a lot of Nick's work because of lots of other reasons, not because I don't like it, but anyway. Um, sometimes it's obvious that the guy doing the report doesn't know much about what he's writing about. Well, that's and, the sa- and less than me, and I don't know very much at all. And, and that is the sad thing with a lot of the reports in there, is that you could literally edit out, I reckon, about 10 paragraphs because there's nothing said in them. And then you get to the nitty-gritty, and often there is a mistake. you know, Or there's one technical term used that you know that this person actually doesn't understand the sport. And that is so frustrating. I also get a bit upset when I hear the Eastern States people talking about, oh, you know, it's no good persevering with a Western force because they've got this is an issue there and that's an issue and blah. And just about everything they pick up on applies to every other franchise in this country as well. I mean, Queensland, they're a rabble. They're terrible. Why are they terrible? If the Western force are terrible, you can come up with some good reasons for it. Oh, we're not a rugby state, blah, blah. Why are Queensland terrible? But I think, John, you have to look at the whole Super Rugby thing. And this year, if you look at the crowds, they have been dreadful mm. all across the board. Um, and the problem is, I think that it's, it's got too big. They went after the mighty dollar, making it Super 18s. The, the fact that you're now hearing from South Africa, 38 players are leaving South Africa at the end of the Super Rugby season to go and play in Japan and Europe because of the, the RAND is so far down in the exchange rates yeah. that they can't can't make any money so they're going to go to Europe and what you can't blame them for that but now you have you know what is it five six franchises in South Africa how are they going to support those obviously there will be young players and there are young players coming through but their rugby will suffer just as Australia's is suffering and I think you you know New Zealand is probably the only country where it won't suffer it's a funny competition because it's a domestic competition that's played internationally and it's it's not like uh, the Heineken rugby in England, which is in in Europe, which is country versus country at that at that level in some respects, because they they're all so close and all the rest of it. I, I just I can't Look, I, fathom how they can proceed with this current setup the way yeah, that they do I it have to agree. I think Super 18 was a step too far, and as we've been saying, uh, when it was Super 12s and all the way back then when the show was on air. What about the island nations? To me, the priority in this part of the world, ahead of Japan and ahead of Argentina, was to include the island nations. But of course, the island nations, if they become stronger, are going to be the biggest threat to the big teams or the big international teams around the world. And of course, 
that's not what World Rugby or the big teams want. I think if I was at the in rugby board, the International Rugby Board... It's oh, World Rugby World now. World Rugby, oh God. Um, I would be looking at it and saying to Argentina, you know what, it's your job to be generating interest and raising the standards of rugby in South America and maybe even North America. You guys have got to be playing against other South American and North American teams. That's where your super, inverted commas, your super rugby is going to be played, is within your continental area. And why, why can't the same be true of South Africa too? Why can't South Africa be in a competition with the Namibians and the Zimbabwe and the other countries in Africa that do play rugby and, and growing the sport that way? I mean, these extra players that are in South Africa, they can always go and play for the Zimbabwe Well, you do have Zimbabweans playing in super rugby at the moment. Well, so. They should be playing for a Zimbabwean side, not for a South African or a New Zealand. I or. hear what you're saying, John, but I think the the structure that World Rugby has done, though, is that you have your first tier nations, then comes your second tier, and a lot of these nations, particularly in South America, are regarded as your third tier. So yep. they do play qualifiers for things like the Rugby World Cup, but they play against teams of an equal standing, and then they jump up a notch and go and into the repechage to try and win their way through. And look, it's a tough one because the standard, as you as you say, from a South Africa Springboks to a Zimbabwe in today's standards would be massive. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Namibia when they played in the Rugby World Cup over here, two thousand three, oh, wow. record score against them. Uh, you know, so it's it's a really Those difficult don't one. improve though by sidelining them. Totally agree with you there. And so the only way you're going to get them better is having them play against better opposition. And if they're constantly being played in the third division, they're never going to get better. And they need the injection of experienced players from South Africa, from those nations in there to teach them. Which leads us nicely into uh, the Hockey Global League. That's not going to be the name, but the one that they're talking about for international hockey. Now, I went to a meeting in London to discuss that, and it's going to be very interesting because the two main criteria for nations to participate in this global league is going to be they have to have the money to be able to participate. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, they have to be able to finance themselves, if it's Australia or New Zealand, to go and play against Great Britain, the Dutch, and in a home-and-away series, and let's say Argentina. Germany. Germany, well, that's interesting you mentioned. Germany will not be in this league as it stands at the moment. So you have the current Olympic champions will not be in the Global League. The reason being is they cannot get TV coverage in Germany. No TV station is interested in the coverage of hockey in Germany. So they will not be in the Global League. So that is another thing that has to happen, is you have to have a television backer. But the the big complaint people were saying with this is, OK, you may have a country like, say, if South Africa suddenly found a lot of money, they can participate in this if they've got a TV station and they've got the money to participate. But the problem you've got is those teams that are below that level, how, again, are they ever going to be able to come up to the level to compete with your Germanys, your Dutch, your Great Britain, your Australias when it comes to World Cups or Olympic Games. They're, they're going to always be struggling because they've not played against them because there won't be other tournaments in which they come up against them. Why so is, you're getting an elitist competition. Why is the British Lions tours to Australia so popular and successful? Would you would you consider that it's because it only happens once in a blue moon? Every four years. Yeah. Every four well, years. Well, Australia every 12 years. If, if Australia was playing the British Lions five times a year, every year, what do you think will happen to crowds and interest? 
Oh yeah, exactly. It wouldn't be there. But that's right. as you say, they they go to South Africa, they go to New Zealand. So it's every twelve years to Australia, you know, and every four years to each of those countries. Uh, my problems with what they call the so-called global league is that it will become too much. What what will be special about Australia playing Great Britain in hockey when they're doing it X number of times every year anyway? Oh, it's the Olympics. It doesn't matter because we're going to play them again in three months or two months. It means nothing. Well, my, my concern as well is that they're getting rid of historical tournaments. And, and I had this discussion with key people over there. And I said, you know, look, if the word is that the Olympics will go to five aside after Japan. So the, the Olympics is the oldest running hockey competition internationally, over 100 years of competition at Olympic Games. Then after that, you have, I think the World Cup started in 1973. The Champions Trophy was 75 or 78. That's going. The Champions Trophy, the last one, will be played in 2018. So that's going to be scrapped. They want to get rid of the Sultan Aslan Shah, which again has been going for 36 editions, and that used to be biennial as well. So that's another one that will go by the Y side. And that tournament, to me, again, serves a purpose in that the Sultan Aslan Shah, if you look at it from an Australian perspective, they take the they want to win it every time they go there, but they throw in a smattering of young up-and-coming players to blood them against international teams and to see how they cope. And it's a way of bringing in the next generation. Now, if you destroy competitions like that, when are you going to have those opportunities to give those youngsters a chance? I just see sports administrators, not just hockey, but sports administrators globally, they see dollar signs and that's it. All sense goes from their minds. And... Quite frankly, they might make a bit more money in the short term, but in the long term, they're going to lose because people will lose interest. And I would much rather see Australia play Great Britain once in a blue moon and get really excited about that than see them play every second week or every three months or whatever it might be and just it be another run-of-the-mill fixture. Hi, I'm Mark Leduca and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Football is a sport where I must admit I've found it very difficult to get excited. The Euros took place recently and to me there was some really boring football play. There were some great games. It was great to see Iceland play. Good to see Wales successful as well. Is this a byproduct of tournament play? The boring nature of the football? I think it is, but I also think this, again, it goes back, this is my view, is there's so much money that teams are afraid to lose, that they're going out there now and it's a case of we don't want to lose this game, we'll get a draw or we'll sneak a win. Whereas it used to be a lot more of the attitude was, well, if they score one, we can score three. But now it's like, well, if they score one, we're in a bit of trouble. How about uh, this for a theory? You, uh, you lose a point for every goal you concede. Well, it needs something. Or is that going to uh, make it more defensive? Or do you get an extra point for goals scored? Is that the way to look Well, at it? that's that's what somebody else suggested, was that maybe you should bring in that. For every goal you score, you get an extra point, which would make the pulls much more interesting. Or a percentage of a point, like point two of a point, or whatever, yeah. for every goal. Percentages, I was never good at at maths, <laughs> so uh, please don't do percentages, because I won't understand <laughs> it. But anyway, uh, it's probably time for us to talk to our guest on the podcast this time. And uh, this is a very interesting lady who's been involved in football her whole life. And to be honest, it's probably kicked her in the teeth a little bit harder than it has most. Benita Merciades, welcome to Not The Footy Show. 
Thank you. Well, I suppose the first thing we should touch on is your love of football and the fact that the Matildas have qualified for Rio. And as a woman involved in football, that must make you very happy. Uh, but I would have thought you're a little bit disappointed that they've not had more investment in recent years. Well, there's a lot of questions there. Um, yes, I think it's fantastic that the Matildas are, are going to be in Rio. Um, it's great to see one that Australian football is going to be there. And it's the first time they've made it to the Olympics in a while. So it's fantastic that they're there. Um, I think what it shows, though, is you know they've done so well and punched above their weight for so long that just a little bit more investment would make such a difference. Uh, even the fact that now some of them are paid a, a decent sort of basic salary um, has made a difference to many of them, having spoken with some of them. Uh, I think if you, know, if you could take that further in terms of sponsorship, support for the whole of the national team setup, um, they would perform even better. No, I'm sure they would. Now, you are coming to Perth and you're going to give a talk about why maybe football hasn't made the sort of inroads that it probably should have done in recent times with the birth of the FFA. But uh, how do you feel it's travelling overall? I think overall it's it's terrific. Um, you know, if when you... I mean, what I'm saying is in terms of where we started back in 1977, say, with the National Soccer League, um, the environment in which that was set up and what happened over the ensuing 27 years or so and then what's happened over the past 13 years, I mean, it's very hard to compare 1977 with now unless you've sort of been alive for a long time like me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, overall there's been substantial progress. Um, but are there still things to be done and things to improve? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think one of the big challenges that the sport still has is that it still struggles with what I will call the mainstream community. Yeah, I mean, we struggle over here in that uh, with trying to give them as much respect as I can. The media and the people writing about the sport, they're not from a football background and they don't engage the local people because they use the terminology or they use the wrong terminology, which immediately gets people offside. People are very sensitive about that. And I think a lot of editors aren't prepared now to employ a specialist football writer whereas they would for other sports? Yeah, that, I think that is one of the issues. I mean, I, I think that goes two ways as well. On the one hand, there are some things which we football fans should perhaps not be as sensitive about as, as we are at times, but um, we also, the, the you know, those who run our media departments in various, whether it be broadcasters or newspapers or, or online publications, should also recognise that this is a substantial world sport and so it's important to get some of the terminology right, even the basic one. I mean, I heard one um, just uh, you know, earlier this week on a um, commercial television station which talked about the score in the, champ in the um, European Championship final which said it was one point to nil. Um, you know, and it was just, I was, I was, happened to be in an area where it was sort of a group television and even people who, in fact, one of the people there is a former rugby league player and even he said one point, you know, don't they know any better than that? So they're the sorts of little things which I think media could take greater care of. But the other thing I would always say about things like that is, you know, if you're a young person and you're thinking of doing something like journalism at university um, and you're interested in sports journalism, then do it. And if you love football, do it. I mean, the more people who get into that field, who love the game and know the game, grown up playing the game, the better. 
Bernardo, you mentioned the term substantial international sport. I think that's what you said, but do you think sometimes the Australian people and more specifically the media don't understand the context that football is in, in a global sense? Because our role models in the, the major sports here only operate within a very small bubble of Australia. They don't really operate on that greater global context. Yeah, I think that's a really good question and I'll give you three examples um, of people who have recognised how big the sport is and they are the three CEOs of FFA, John O'Neill, Ben Buckley, David Gull. Now, John O'Neill probably came from the most international sport other than ours um, of the football codes and that's rugby. And even he said he couldn't believe how big this game was. I knew Ben Buckley, worked with him closely for a few years and I know that he, he, you know, it was just beyond, as an ex-AFL player, an ex-AFL executive was beyond anything he had come across, I mean, from outside the relatively closeted world of AFL. Um, and then even David Gullett, where Rugby League has got a bit of an international presence, but only a small one, he, you know, everyone says that they can't believe how big it is. And you only have to go to something, I mean, putting aside the World Cup as a fan, and seeing fans from at least 32 nations there, but go to something like a, a FIFA Congress when you've got you know, three delegates from 211 countries plus all the media pack that goes with them, plus all the people who work in and around FIFA and the six confederations, it's truly universal, it's truly huge. And you know, we quote numbers such as there are three billion fans and people I don't think have a concept of what three billion fans is. We, none of us have ever, you know, unless Frank Lowy, none of us have ever got to count three billion of it. So, you know, it, it's very true. And then, you know, when it, when a World Cup's on, I think, you know, the figures are up to a cumulative total of 32 billion people. I mean, that, that's, they're just extraordinary numbers, which it's, you know, a bit like talking about a deficit or something. People don't understand it when it gets to a certain point. You mentioned those three CEOs, and, and you were obviously involved in bringing Frank Lowy back into football in 2002, I think it was. Do you think we went the right path by getting an Australian to be the CEO of the FFA or should we maybe have got somebody from outside who understood the global value of the game? Well, that's an interesting question too. It was 2001 when we first met Frank Lowy, by the way, and, and sort of convinced him that it would be, might be a good idea if he thought about coming back into the game. Um, I think... Um, I think at the time, John O'Neill was a good appointment um, because one of the things that needed to be, where, where they needed to be cut through was with the, uh, and I use this term again, and I, I don't use it sort of loosely really, but it needed to be cut through with the mainstream community and people who understood that. So I think if we had brought in a person from an, you know, whether they be from the UK or Europe or, or Asia or elsewhere from the football community, it would have been more of that, oh, that, that's, that's a wog sport. You know, that's not something that we play. So I think from that perspective, John O'Neill was the right sort of person. He uh, and it certainly needed someone at the time who didn't come from the sport at all locally because um, you needed to get rid of the baggage that was around it. If, if we look at your time with the FFA, I mean, you went in there obviously passionate about the game. Everyone knows you grew up loving the game. You've, you've played it. You've been a soccer mum. I think I saw you describe yourself at some point. And then you've worked in the media side as well. How did you find your time there? Was it 
everything you expected it to be, or did it obviously... Obviously, the outcome, I'm sure, was extremely disappointing. Um, I th- look, I think, if, I think the great mistake um, strategically for Australia was trying for that World Cup bid at the time, using taxpayers' money and in an environment where it was well known that FIFA was shonky. Um, and so, therefore, the decision was never going to be made on the basis of evidence or merit. And I think, you know, from that, if you accept that as the basic premise, then I think that part of my time at FFA, putting aside what happened to me personally, but just I think it was a period in which the game sort of stood still because so much else didn't happen um, that should have been happening. And, you know, you've got the for instance, really rather dramatic resignation of Archie Fraser, for example, who was head of the A-League at the time, who said um, he couldn't get any decisions made because everything was sitting in an in-tray in the CEO's office, and that's absolutely true because the CEO was taken off with the World Cup bid and didn't do anything else, and he wasn't a person who was had sort of learnt Delegation 101 at the time. I'm sure he's moved on since then. Um, so I think that made it difficult. But, you know, having said that, if you're a football person and you love your football and, as you said, have grown up with it and played it and put up nets on a Saturday morning in minus seven degrees in Canberra and things like that, yeah, so it was a great place to to um, have the opportunity to make a difference, yeah. The one thing I find hard is obviously with the whole, um, how do we describe it, the, the blowout of, of the World Cup bids and the Qatar bid and the Russia bid and all of that, you know, there were only two women that were singled out uh, in by Judge Eckhart, and you were one of them, and the other was Fidra Al-Majid. I mean, do you think, again, that was a deliberate ploy because it's like almost that still male bastion? We know, I think, Sepp Blatter is, is, was a, actually a bit of a male chauvinist. Do you think, again, it was a case of putting the women in their place or we can sacrifice you? I think it was certainly in the case of the Garcia Stroke Eckert reports, uh, um, a case of putting women in their place. I mean, if you look at the time, um, we were the only two people who basically put up our hands, and from very different perspectives, but we basically put up, up our hands and said there's something very wrong here, um, not just in terms of the decisionary Qatar, but also Russia. But uh, as I kept saying for some time, in terms of the whole process, in terms of the the, the bid process itself. and. Um, you know, what does FIFA do traditionally when people dare to question it is that they there is a, a, a strong culture of silence and a strong culture of intimidation, and that's precisely what they did. I can't talk about some of the things that they've done to me or even to Phaedra, um, but they d- went to extraordinary lengths to intimidate us. And then when they sort of came out with that Eckert report and wrote what they did about each of us, which was slightly different, I think they sort of expected that we would go into a corner and curl up and die and never be seen or or heard of again. However, from my perspective, I thought if they're that determined to have a go at me um, when I know that I've done nothing but tell the truth, then they uh, there's obviously there's something really big to hide here. And I'm very, getting very close to it. And, um, you know, time will tell as authorities finish, finish with their investigations, etc. that that's absolutely right. Benita, the IOC at one time was confronted by many of the issues that FIFA now finds itself confronted by. The IOC managed to pull itself together and, and sort these problems out. What is it that's keeping the football world from you know, confronting these issues in a far more head-on way? Why are we still hearing stories of 
people like um, Platini in, in Europe and what's going on there with uh, the European organisations? Uh, I think there was an important difference in relation to the IOC. First of all, a lot of people would say that the IOC isn't yet fixed and isn't yet <laughs> yeah. the bastion of great governance or management. But putting aside that, the big issue with the IOC, and this is why we in the advocacy group that I'm involved with, New FIFA Now, has, has targeted them, was the sponsors. Um, back in when the Salt Lake City scandal happened, which, by the way, implicated the Sydney Games as well, but back when that happened... Um, the big sponsors of the Olympic Committee were American companies and under the US law there was an opportunity for the US Congress to say to the American companies, if you keep sponsoring these organisations, um, we're going to take drastic action in law against you as American companies. And they that basically focused the attention of the Coca-Colas and the Nikes, etc., of this world um, and they were the ones who basically pushed for independent reform, which, um, um, gosh, Romney, Romney led, Mitt Romney at the time. Um, and that at least did give the, uh, the Olympic movement some very basic reform and basic governance structures, which they've stuck to pretty much um, so far to, to this day. Um, but as we said, at the, as I said at the outset, there are still many issues in the Olympic movement as well. I mean, I think we're facing a bit of a, um, a real challenge in sport at the moment. You know, in terms of where the power structures are, how they keep in, how they keep in place, and this is, and especially in the international sports. And there's no greater example than Concacaf, um, the South American, North American part of football. Jack Warner's gone. The person who came in his place was. Well, no one is quite as bad as Jack Warner, but, um, you know, the person who came in his place has also been indicted and and then the third one who came in his place has been as well. So it, it is, as Loretta Lynch, the US Attorney General, has said, it's, a, it's like a um, an organised crime syndicate. In fact, Andrew Jennings was the first to say that, but he used more colourful language. Um, you know, it's an organised crime syndicate where everybody knows their place, everybody has their place, and you take one person out of the structure and there's another one to come back into it. So there's some really huge issues which, um, you know, to get back to your question about what's going on in Europe, the investigations in relation to what the US and Swiss are doing at the moment, they haven't even touched Asia or Africa or Oceania. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is worldwide. The pr problems are worldwide. Not all the people are bad, but... The issues go deep and broad. You, you mentioned new FIFA now, which you've been a part of with, I think, Damien Collins, the English MP, was one of the ones who set it up. Um, and it was great reading the stuff. But, you know, we've had an election, a new FIFA president there. But you just get the feeling that Gianni Infantino, nothing is really going to change. The promises he made in his manifesto, you, I think you wrote an article actually saying, how is he going to find the money to pay all the promises that he's made? I mean... How is it going to change, and is new FIFA now going to be able to force this body to actually change its statutes and the way it does business? Well, I think um, that Gianni Infantino does have a big issue in terms of of the finances of his promises. I mean, and and just the way he got into power, what did he do? He promised more places at the World Cup, so that made more countries happy, and he promised. Everybody, every country, 211 countries, $5 million each. Um, 
So that immediately makes them feel warm and cuddly towards him and, and that was the basis of, of him getting in. And it's interesting in that respect in that Sheikh Salman, who so many people didn't want to see win, I mean, he at least on the financial side of things was much more sort of, uh, I guess, conservative financially. So that was interesting. In terms of what new FIFA now will continue to do, um, we try to, and we've done this all along, we, you know, very early on when we um, were established, we wrote to Blatter, we wrote to Valka, we wrote to them and sought to meet with them and talk about what we saw as some of the key issues. We, uh, in fact, have sent off a letter today to Fatma Samura, the new Secretary General, because we try to give these people an opportunity to get it right. Likewise with Infantino. But, you know, we're now up to day 137 of his time in charge and he still hasn't got a salary. I mean, the man's got four children and a wife. What are they doing? You know, it's he found an offer of two million um, US dollars, quote, insulting. Um, he pro he came in on a promise that his salary would be known because this isn't a private organisation run by private individuals. It is an organisation that runs a world sport that's important to three billion people, as I said. Um, so we should know what his salary is. We know what the President of the United States earns. We know what Malcolm Turnbull earns, but we don't know what the President of FIFA earns. And day 137 into his job, he still apparently isn't getting paid. So, I mean, that's just a... It's not minor, but that's just one small thing, um, but an important one and an important symbol of some of the things they could start to address. What will we do? Continue what we've been doing. I mean, we give them some time to get into a new role. That's only fair. You look at... Um, we've already looked at what he's done in his first 100 days and that wasn't much. Um, you know, he lost a few key people, a few people resigned. Even um, Fatma Samura cannot question her credentials, her experience, um, and it's fantastic as a matter of principle to see a woman in the role. Um, but it was done without any due process, which is precisely, you know, what one of the issues that FIFA faces. And where is her lack of experience? in commercial relationships. Where is FIFA vulnerable? Where have they been corrupt? Not just allegedly, but they have been corrupt. It's in their commercial relationships. So there are many things to keep an eye on. Um, but, you know, these things um, don't happen overnight <laughs> and we, we just sort of keep a watching brief and we'll, we'll see where we are at certain, um, I guess, milestones throughout the year. Bernard, did you think there's a chance that... Um FIFA might lose control to a degree. I mean, things like the Premier League are essentially owned these days by very rich men who've got a lot of very deep pockets. Would they get to the point where they decide we're not going to put up with this anymore, we'll run our own competition, we sign the players, buggy up, basically? Yeah, I think that is a risk for FIFA. I think there's a risk for FIFA to that... You know, if there's much more that is discovered in terms of the organisation um, and the people who work there, um, you know, the Swiss government has to sort of have a what are we doing moment as well because, um, you know, the Swiss government allow has allowed this to sort of flourish under their watch. Um, there's But there's quite a lot of talk around at the moment in terms of what the Premier League clubs are doing. I know I read something just um, this morning about how Wanda, who is one of FIFA's new sponsors, the Chinese company, 
um, is actually talking about an alternative Champions League competition. So there's this whole tension also between UEFA, which has all the money in the big-name leagues, and FIFA, and yet you've now got a FIFA president who comes from UEFA. So there's quite a lot of um, balls in the air. I'd feel easier. Well, going back full circle, really, I suppose all of this conjecture and uncertainty can't be good for helping the game reach the peaks it should over here in Australia as well. No, and that's one of the things that I've been saying for a long time. I, I think, you know, if you're a mum or a dad, you, not everybody's going to be fully engaged in these issues. We recognise that. Not, you know, some people just want to play or watch the sport, not get involved in the politics of it. But when you hear about um, corruption in the game, um, this person being indicted, that person indi indicted, there, there's, it doesn't add to a good impression of the game. And so, you know, that's a, an absolute key reason to want to clean it up because we want the sport to grow in this country and um, we want all the best environment possible for that to happen and that means that people aren't sort of um, hearing stories or hearing tales of corruption all the time. Benita, just take, changing tack for a little bit, we've uh, recently had the AFL announce their new women's league. Mm -hmm. Now, personally, I thought it was great that they've finally joined us in the 19th century, but I was just wondering how you think that might affect the, the football uh, the women's side of the game here? Um, well, I mean, they've done that, obviously, in response to how popular women's football is. Um, I, I think there's two interesting aspects to that, too. It's also the relationship with netball. Um, so there's, one, you've got the competition for elite players, um, and, two, you've got an issue of, I think, AFL's trying to perhaps um, keep their position that they've maintained for a long time in terms of... Um, attracting women's support for the sport. And dare I say it, there's almost a bit of a dog whistle there. It's almost as if the two Aussie sports of AFL and netball are saying, well, let's get together and make this space ours. So I think, I, I mean, I would hope that's not the reason that the AFL's done it, but it, it is, you have to be frank and say that it's there. I, um, I think the issue for women playing Aussie rules, it's fantastic to see. My view is a person who's, you know, played amateur sport and and is a mum, you want to see young people play any sport they want to play because it's it's good for them for all sorts of reasons. Um, but for the elite sports person, it's the same as um, a young, a teenage boy. I mean, the if a teenage boy is thinking with his brain as well as his feet, he's going to play football because there's much more opportunity than... On a, on a national and international stage than there is playing Aussie rules. It's as, it's as you said earlier. Um, you know, a lot of people, and don't get me wrong, I've followed AFL all my life as well. I mean, I have, I won't say what my team is seeing as I'm talking to people in Perth. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I have one black eye and one yellow eye, and that's a clue. Okay. And, I'll clear my um, <laughs> yeah, That's right, it's Claremont in Perth, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Glen Elgin, Adelaide, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think, and that's always been, a um, from an AFL perspective, that's always been the competitive danger that they've recognised in, in football in a long, long time. I mean, I didn't, I think it was Andrew Dimitri who, who termed this, the, um, the term the sleeping giant, at, you know, some years ago. And that was why, because he knew that the numbers of kids were coming through. If football ever got its act into gear and, maintained that, um, you know, that transition through, 
um, then the other sports were at risk. Just with the uh, netball, sorry. Can I, sorry, can I just say, though, having said that, I, I, I think I, I would like to see it less as a competitive thing. I mean, and this is from a, from a business perspective, this is difficult. But in terms of a consumer, as a fan of sport, um, I, I would love to see people being able to enjoy them all. No, I think that's a fair point. The one thing I worry with the netball and AFL link-up, we saw it in the old NSL where AFL Carlton and Collingwood came in, didn't last very long. I think, yes, I know there are traditionally in Europe and in South America clubs that have been built around a whole sporting body or in that there's tennis courts, there's been cricket clubs and football clubs all linked together. It's not really been the way over here, and I worry that their core business is AFL, and are they going to be able to support and sustain the netball teams to the level that is required? Or is it, when things get tough, is their focus going to shift back to the core, which is the AFL club? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the key will be as to who is continues to run the netball competition and how well that's run. And you'd, you'd have to say that probably netball is in a better position now, today, than football or the NSL was at the time. I mean... One of the issues for the NSL at the time is that, you know, Perth Glory was one of those clubs. Uh, Brisbane Strikers was another one. Um, and then they, they brought in those clubs attached to the AFL clubs like Carlton and Collingwood that tried to sort of push through a slightly different model, which the rest of the competition wasn't ready for. Um, and which, you know, there wasn't the environment at the um, national governing body as to, to get the competition growing, going properly. And I think that's probably very different in netball. And I would also think that, what is it, 20 years on or so, AFL's probably learned lessons from that. They probably have. Well, Benita, it's been wonderful catching up with you now, and we look forward to catching up with you when you come over to Perth and give your talk on, I think it's the 25th, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it also. But thanks so much for your time today. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, I'm Zoko Kalat, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Well, that was Benita Merciades, who, of course, was formerly with the FFA and uh, is now very much involved in new FIFA now. And let's hope that that can, in fact, have an effect. I find it scary, John, when she said that Gianni Infantino, the new head of FIFA, still hasn't got a salary. And yet he turned his nose up at two million a year. Yeah, well, I mean... I feel a bit for Benita because she's the one, when you spend millions of dollars doing a report into corruption and you come out with, oh, the person that told us about the corruption is the corrupt one, oh, there's something smelly going on there. Well, I think the other thing that you have to admire with Benita is that I believe it's been five years since she was shown the door by Frank Lowy. It wasn't done at the FFA offices. It was done at his Westfield offices. She was not allowed back to the FFA offices to empty her desk. And she's not been given a job in Australia since because they did such a smear campaign on her saying that she was a bad person and all of that. I think listening to her there, she doesn't sound a bad person to me. She just sounds like an honest person who wants the best for the game of football. Well, she she was given the opportunity, and she's had plenty of opportunities to sink the boot in if she wants. And she appears not to be wanting to do that. She just wants things to get better. It's not about you know bringing someone down. It's about making the whole thing uh, much better for everybody else. 
And uh, we should mention, of course, that she is going to be talking at the Game Sports Bar on Monday, the 25th of July at 7.30. It's called A Game for Garlic Eaters, and it is free entry at the Game Sports Bar. It's part of the Australian Society of Sports History, but do urge as many people as possible to get down there. If you've got a question for Benita, I'm sure she'll answer it, but it should be a really fascinating night. So that's the Game Sports Bar, Monday, the 25th of July, 730 and it's free of charge to get in. Uh, just a little quick one. Hoggy, he's gone. He's not going to be at the Scorchers. What are the Scorchers fans going to do this year with no Brad? Well, it is a blow, and I believe... Is it? Well, it's funny. I, I, I think people will be very disappointed because he's such a character. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, and let's be honest, T20 is not serious cricket. It's all about entertainment. There he's is an that. entertainer. There is that. I mean... Um, Everything comes to an end sooner or later. I think even Hoggy said that. Everything comes to an end sooner or later. He's, what, 45, 46, 45? Um, <laughs> is it a shock that a 45-year-old might not be playing for your sporting team anymore? I believe it's a shock for the Scorchers, who didn't see it coming, but I believe that it was that arrogance of assuming that he would sign and delaying and delaying on the discussions with him is why he left. Fair enough. And let's face it, it's professional sport. T20 is all about the money. It's not about, you know, loyalty. It's not about any of the things that sport traditionally is about. It's about money and money alone. And you go where the money is. And maybe it was just too good an offer to refuse, regardless of how good he felt about the Scorchers. I believe he was actually offered more by one of the franchises, a little bit further north. Oh, okay. But he turned that down. So he's going to Melbourne. Yeah. I mean, I think they just do a better cappuccino. See ya. We'll be back next week.